Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Okay, so let's turn again to Ephesians chapter 3. In the message this morning, we're mostly going to uh, look at from verse 13 down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Of course, the beginning half of Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the the, uh, mystery, that dispensation of grace that had been delivered to him. And uh, he describes how it was hidden in, in time past. And, but now you see, for instance, in verse nine, uh, he says that what was what was given to him was to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Uh, but you know that often the the world doesn't want to see that. Paul made it his his goal, or God made it Paul's goal. You could say he gave it to Paul to make all men see that fellowship of the mystery. Um, But sometimes it's hard to make people see something they don't want to see. And so in verse 13, uh, Paul talks about the tribulations that that he was going through. Uh, You know, the Apostle Paul, there's various passages where he describes some of the various things that he endured. And of course, you you see in the book of Acts, uh, the various uh, things that, that Paul suffered. Um, there were many times where he was beaten, stoned, and left for dead. Uh, possibly even was dead. It's possible the Lord raised him from the dead. But uh, he was shipwrecked. He, you know, uh, just everywhere he went, there was trouble because the message that he was preaching was not a popular message, right? He was uh, pointing out the, the idolatry of the world around him and instead pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, the, the world, the Lord Jesus Christ promised, he said that, that they had hated him, and so they were going to hate those that believed on him. And, um, so, so Paul endured all kinds of tribulations, and while Paul was willing to endure those things, he worried that these saints at Ephesus, and seeing the things that he was going through, it would cause them to lose heart. It would cause them to, to give up. And he says, I, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which he says is, is your glory. Uh, we'll see a little bit more about that later on. But verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And here's one of, of several passages in your Bible, in, in Paul's epistles where you have recorded 
the things that Paul was praying for the saints. And when you, when you look at those various prayers that the Apostle Paul prayed, including this one, you, you may notice some differences maybe between how we often pray and how the Apostle Paul prayed for the saints, the things that he prayed for them. Uh, you know, very often, uh, for us, you know, for, for prayer, uh, we, you know, we list the things that maybe we want changed in our life or that we want changed in, in other people's lives. And so often those things revolve around things like, like health problems, that, that kind of thing. And certainly you should, uh, pray for people that are, that are having health problems. But you don't see a lot of that here in these, in these recorded prayers of the Apostle Paul. Uh, rather, what was foremost in his mind as he prayed for these saints was that God would give them, he talks about them being strengthened in the inner man. He, he talks about them uh, being rooted and grounded in love. He, he talks about them comprehending some things and knowing some things and, and being enlightened. And, uh, you know, above all of the, the, the physical things, which just, you know, we experience to a greater or lesser degree all of the time, what Paul was praying for the saints was that they would be built up in, really in God's Word. That was his prayer for them. And be, because when you're, when you're rooted and grounded in love, when you have that firm foundation in God's Word, the, you know, the, the circumstances of life that come up are things that you can deal with. It doesn't mean they're easy, but they're things that you can deal with because you understand, you understand some things about eternity. You understand some things about your place in, in the plan and purpose of God. You understand, uh, you know, that we live in a sin-cursed world and, and when you live in a sin-cursed world, there are bad things that are going to happen, right? And, and you can put all of those things in, in proper perspective. And on the other hand, if, if all you're doing, you know, if your only desire for people is that they be well, uh, if somebody's lost and they get better from whatever they were suffering from, they're still lost. They're still headed for an eternity separated from God, an eternity in the lake of fire. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Uh, as far as where the priorities ought to be. Now, certainly here, Paul, in, in praying for these Ephesians, he has no, no concern that they're going to, you know, somehow lose their salvation or lose eternal life. That's, that's not in question here. But for the believer, you know, the, the degree to which we, uh, are built up in God's Word is going to have eternal consequences as well. You know, there are, uh, you know, certainly the believer doesn't have to worry about the lake of fire, but, for the believer, there's a judgment seat of Christ where believers are going to stand and answer for, for uh, what we did in, in this life and what we did with the Word of God and what we did with that, that doctrine that's been delivered to us. And we're going to receive reward or loss of reward based on that. Uh, do you realize that the things that you're doing right now and the things that you're learning from God's Word and the ways that you're growing and, and then, you know, the, the fruit that comes as a result of that, uh, 
Or on the other hand, the things that you're not doing, the things that you're, that you're setting aside, the things that you're ignoring from God's Word, uh, you realize that that's going to determine some things in eternity for you. There's going to be some, some rewards. We're not, we're not going to look at the rewards in great detail today. It's not really the, the topic of the message. But, um, you understand that there is a, there is a reward for faithful service to the Lord. And uh, it has to do with, with a, a position of reigning in eternity. And, uh, you know, God, this, this life for the believer, uh, what we do with, with the things of the Word of God, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a test to determine, you know, where we're gonna serve in eternity. And, uh, Paul, Paul, uh, is more concerned about, for these saints, he's more concerned that they would have some understanding from the Word of God than he is just that they would be sound in body. And so he says that he he bows his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, you don't have to bow your knees to pray. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to pray. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells you to pray without ceasing. And obviously he doesn't have in mind that you would be on your knees all of the time. Uh, you know, many, many times you see, uh, in the Old Testament, for instance, even in the New Testament, uh, the way that, that people often prayed was to pray like this, standing and arms raised to God. That's a proper way to pray. Uh, to bow your knees, uh, here is, is a different posture for prayer. Uh, you know, to, to bow your knee is a very, a very humble thing. That's the idea that he's coming to the Lord in humility, bowing his knees to the Father. And, uh, you know, if you, if you never pray that way, I, I would consider it once in a while, consider, uh, bowing your, you know, even just that physical posture, bowing the knees in prayer. Uh, Paul says he bowed his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And uh, just back to verse 15 again, when he talks about the whole family in heaven and earth, uh, you understand that God has had, when you come through the Bible, God has two purposes in the Bible. There's a, there's an earthly purpose with an earthly people Israel concerning an earthly kingdom that God's going to set up on the earth. And there is a heavenly purpose that concerns the body of Christ, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, that, uh, concerns the heaven for eternity. Uh, you realize out in eternity, there's going to be an earth and there's going to be a kingdom on that earth that's going to last forever. And there's also going to be Believers in heavenly places, serving God in heavenly places. You have a, a heavenly purpose and an earthly purpose. And, and here, when, uh, Paul describes the, that, that family, those that have, have, uh, become sons of God through faith in Christ, what he says is that, that that whole family in heaven and earth is named of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And uh, so that's an important thing to understand when you study your Bible, to understand that distinction between the heavenly things and the earthly things. 
you know, the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry uh, said to, to Nicodemus, for instance, uh, he said, I've, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't understand. How will you understand if I speak to you of heavenly things? You realize that the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, he was physically here on, on the earth, was not a heavenly ministry. It wasn't, the body of Christ wasn't being formed. That had to do with that kingdom to Israel. Um, we're, we're a part of the body of Christ, that heavenly purpose. And the Apostle Paul here prays that for the Ephesians, that God would grant them, he says, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened with might. When, when you think of, of somebody who is mighty, uh, you think of, of, a, of a mighty man. You know, the, what, what the world looks at as might, you know, later today, uh, a bunch of men are going to line up on a field, right? And they're going to, um, you know, run and tackle each other, pass a football and do those kinds of things. And, and some of those men, compared to you or I, are mighty men, <laughs> right? Uh, that, there's a there's a certain might, a, a certain a certain power there, a certain strength there. Um, I was listening to an interesting uh, program yesterday. In fact, I made Brooke listen to it. But uh, about some of the some of the history of American football, it was uh, it, it was it was fascinating to me. I'm not much of a football fan, but the but the story was interesting because uh, football originally. Football kind of started after the Civil War, late 1800s. And football originally, there wasn't really much passing. It was, they had, they had, uh, it wasn't uh, uh, 10 yard, 10 yards to get a first down. You had three downs to go five yards. And basically every, every play was a, was a, a run, you know. And uh, it was basically just guys smashing into each other. And, um, it was very popular at, at Harvard and Yale. And um, there was this Indian school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where um, uh, it was a school that was set up by the government. They would take these, these young um, Native Americans, take them out of their culture. And the idea was they had, a, they had a motto. Their motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. It was to basically get get rid of everything that was Indian in them and make them like white men so they could assimilate into white society and culture. And the the uh, the man who had that school, he saw football as a way to kind of get. I mean, they could they could play against these Ivy League teams, Harvard and Yale, and that that kind of thing, but. They were on average 20 pounds lighter than the Harvard and Yale guys. And the, uh, one of their coaches was Pop Warner. Some of you might recognize that name. Pop Warner Youth Football. Uh, Pop Warner was a coach at several, several, uh, colleges. But, um, he saw they couldn't play the game the way Harvard and Yale played the game. They were going to have to do, he, he developed various trick plays. Uh, they, and there weren't any rules, there were hardly any rules in football. Most of the rules 
that are there in football now, or a lot of them, were put in place to stop the trick plays that Pop Warner used with the Carlisle Indian School to beat Yale and Harvard. They would do things like um, they, uh, you know, the the Ivy League guys had a lot more might, just outward physical force, and so the receivers they would always just push them out of bounds as soon as they could. Well, there was no rule that you couldn't come back in bounds, and so um, Pop Warner told his receiver Albert Exendine to just run downfield out of bounds and then come back in, right? So, so he ran around the back of the spectators, downfield, <laughs> came back on the field, and caught a pass. Uh, in fact, the, the spiral pass came, Pop Warner figured that was the best way to throw the football. That was the Carlisle Indian School that started doing that. Uh, they started to be, Jim Thorpe came out of that Carlisle Indian School. Okay, um, and and these guys beat Harvard and Yale. Those guys at Harvard and Yale thought they had some power and some might, right? But they couldn't often couldn't beat the trick plays. They had they had a play by the way where uh, the the hidden ball trick, where they would put the ball up the back of the sweater jersey of you know one of the one of the players. And, in fact, they sewed a special pocket in the back where they could slip that ball up there and it wouldn't fall out, and nobody could figure out where the ball was, right? Until they, until then the Ivy League, whatever Pop Warner did, then the Ivy League would come back the next year and pass a rule against it. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting history. But uh, you realize there's, there's some kind of power and might in that, but certainly not anything that a verse like this would be talking about. Uh, I mean, even just in in the scale. I mean, when you see a guy like that, you you know, some uh, some offensive lineman, and you think, wow, that's a that's a powerful guy. Um, you know, maybe in a relative sense, maybe in comparison to you or I, but there, you know, there's certainly all kinds of things that are much more powerful than than uh, someone like that. Um, in fact, you know, most of of the industrial technology and innovation and things were made to overcome the lack of power that, that we have just as far as physical strength. Uh, you know, certainly when you compare men and you start thinking about biblical things, uh, the Bible describes how man was made a little lower than the angels. And, and you know, angels, for instance, are these created beings that have so much more power than man. I mean, man is just a, a little weakling in comparison to to an angel. I mean, you, you think about a story in the Old Testament, for instance, where the angel of the Lord uh, kills an entire army in one night, 185,000 men uh, killed in one night by an angel. Okay? Now, now, that, now you're starting to get into some power. Uh, and, and yet even that isn't really what a verse like this is talking about. Uh, because, because this isn't talking about outward physical power at all. It says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 
And so, so first of all, this is not a, a strength, it's an inner strength that it's talking about. But you know, even in, even in the unsaved world, they'll talk about somebody having inner strength. Meaning, maybe they've, they've, uh, uh, built up some degree of willpower, resolve, you know, that kind of thing. But that's not what it's talking about here either. Because this isn't something that man can develop in himself. You see, it, he says that he would grant you to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. The kind of might that Paul is looking for for the Ephesians is something that is alien to themselves. It's, it's external to them. It's not, it's not something that they can just work up in themselves through positive thinking or through perseverance or, or any of those things. It, it's not something where, uh, like a, like a football team can practice and, and, you know, and, and lift weights and develop that might. That's not what this is. Because this is something that has to be supplied from somewhere else. It's not something you can develop in yourself and work up in yourself. It has to come from somewhere else. And the source of that might is His Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord. You see the word Spirit there? It should be capitalized in your Bible. Uh, because it's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And, you know, when a, when a believer, when somebody becomes a believer, the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in them. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. Something different from you, separate from you, a part of God, He takes and puts within you. Now, you know, these are things you can't, you can't test in a laboratory, right? You, you take it by faith in God's Word. Uh, that's how you know about it. That's how you, that's how you know it's true. Uh, but God takes a part of Himself and He puts it within the believer. That Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in the believer. Which means that the believer has access now to a power that the world doesn't understand, doesn't, you know, doesn't really care about anyway. Uh, it's not a power to, you know, run for 90 yards. It's not a power to lift great weight. It's not a power to destroy an army. It's not that kind of a power. But it's a spiritual power. It's a, it's a spiritual might that is described there. And he's describing that throughout the, the next several verses. You see in verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. Now, he talks about the Spirit being there in the inner man. He also says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Likewise, the, that Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. We can say that as, as believers, Christ dwells in us. But you know, there's, there's different kinds of dwelling. Uh, there's a sense in which, as a believer... When Christ comes to dwell in you, there's a sense in which Christ always dwells in you and, and never leaves. Uh, again, there's a, there's a security there. But if that's what Paul's talking about here, why would he say that he's praying for them that Christ would dwell in them? He knows these are believers, 
right? There's a, there's a different kind of dwelling. Um, you know, for instance, if, if, uh, you go and stay in a, in a hotel room somewhere, we were, we were in a hotel last week, uh, we're over at a Bible conference last Saturday, uh, in Green Bay, uh, you dwell for the night in that, in that hotel room. But that's very different from how you dwell in your own home, right? Um, when you're in your own home, then you're, you're at home, you're, you're comfortable, you're, I mean, that's the place where you, where you dwell, where you live. And Christ dwells in all believers in the sense that he's, you know, he's spiritually present. Uh, in in every believer. But what Paul is praying here is not just that Christ would be present, but that Christ would be able to be at home in you. You know, there's some believers where Christ is present in them, but you look at the, the things that they're doing, the things that they're uh, spending their time thinking about and, and just the way they're living their life, and you can bet that, you know, Christ is present, there, if they're a believer, if they believe the gospel, regardless of how they're living their life, but do you think Christ is at home in that? See, here when he's saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, it's that that you would be growing spiritually in such a way that Christ is, is you know dwelling there like you dwell in your own home, not like you're a stranger in you know in some some uh, room that's available for the public or a stranger in somebody else's home, but that you're in your own home. Is your is your life, is your body, is it is it your home where Christ is a guest or is it his? Does it belong to him? Does he dwell in your heart by faith? He says that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. That verse, verse 18, is a verse that used to, used to confuse me a little bit because you see there's four dimensions. It appears there's four dimensions there in that verse. Right? Not, not three, but four. Um, and, and I think, what's, you know, oh, there's another, there's an extra dimension in that verse, you know, and think of it in kind of a, a science fiction sort of sense. But that's not really, that's not really what it is at all, because there's not actually four dimensions in that verse. But if you look at it, okay, there's breadth and length. But when you talk about depth and height, those are both in the same dimension, right? It's just that one is a measurement going down and one is a measurement going up. Because what he's describing there is he's not describing, you know, some, some three-dimensional object out in space like this. What he's describing is he's describing the fact that uh, the, the body of Christ is likened to a building. Uh, go, over to, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now there's a, a couple different, um, different analogies used here in these verses, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, 
For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.